I remember it like it was yesterday. I had this perfect plan in place and this perfect plan involved a path. It was a path of a dozen roses that would lead my then girlfriend to the place where she would become my fiance. And I, I, I worked up this situation where my family brought her to this park and she didn't know why she was there. And she starts out on this path and, and there's a dozen roses. She's following one right after the other. And the last rose was placed in the exact spot of our first kiss. And that would be the spot that I would propose to her. And that's as far as I got in my planning. <laughs> and in my mind, everything was gonna be perfect. And it, it was kind of to start out. Like she, she gets placed on this path and she's following the path and she's picking up these roses and she gets to this last rose that's placed in the spot of our very first kiss, or I should more accurately say the place where she first kissed me. Okay, I mean, if I'm just being honest. Okay, so, and, and, and there, there she is in this spot, like literally by this little pond in the middle of the woods and and, and I was positioned hiding behind this tree like a weird stalker. And I didn't give a lot of thought to like, what would happen after she got to that last rose? And I thought, oh man, how sweet and awesome. Like all this planning to get her there and surprise her and put her on this path of roses to get to the last spot where we first kissed. And then I thought, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so I... I, I I, I just was a weirdo. I mean, like she gets there and I'm like stalking her. She didn't know I'm there. And then like, I'm like, oh no, I don't know what to do. And so I just like <laughs> popped out of the trees, like some total weird creeper guy. Like I like, she's there and she's looking around. And I'm like, oh man. So I just kind of walk out. Hi. And like, you guys, I was so nervous and scared. Like, I have no color. Like, I'm just like totally flush, white. Like, I'm weird walking out. Of the, like, all of a sudden, I appear from the trees. And, and she looks at me, and I'll never forget. She said just the sweetest thing. She said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, I mean, like, I, look, I must have looked like horrific, right? I just looked so bad. And then what do you say? I hadn't planned that out either. Oh, strange to see you out here in the middle of the woods. I didn't, and so I just like came and I got down on one knee and I was like, will you marry me? I was so scared. And she's looking at me like, you know, like this isn't how I envisioned this would happen. You know what I mean? Like the rose is good, but like me, bad. And, and so then like immediately I asked her and she just starts crying. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> like also didn't plan for that. She's just crying. And I'm like, oh man. I said, yes. And ladies, Listen, those of you who are single, when, when you meet someone who asks you to marry them, if you're going to do it, tell them, all right? We don't care. We don't want to see any tears, okay? And so, like, I literally have to ask her, is that a yes, no, maybe, we think it? And she's like, yes. I'm like, whoo, right? And so from that point forward, she's, you know, announced to the world she's engaged to this weird stalker guy she met in the middle of the woods, you know? And, and, and so I was so nervous. We leave there. We walk back down this path. And we get in my car, except we don't get in my car because I locked my keys in the car. 
and I have to call my parents and say, can you come pick us up, right? And so <laughs> nothing went like I thought it would go. But on our 20th anniversary, I thought I'm going to get it right. So of course we have kids involved now. And so all my kids, we're, we're in on this and we blindfold her and she has no idea where she's going. She thinks like we're doing one thing, of course we're doing another. And we take her back to this exact same spot. And I have a dozen roses laid out on this path. And it ends in the same spot where she first kissed me and where I proposed to her weirdly and awkwardly 21 years prior, except this time, yes, I was still behind a tree, but I came out like a boss. <laughs> oh yeah, I know how this is gonna go, right? And I re-proposed, I think, and she said yes again, which that was her mistake. And so here we are, right? But, but I'll never get that path. The path was good. <laughs> the execution after that was bad. And when you think about a path, right? Like when I think about a path, I, I, I immediately think of that. I think of that path. That was such an important path in my life, right? Her walking down that path and saying yes. <laughs> but we all have paths in life. I mean, there are like literal paths, right? Like we love to go hiking and you take a path. And there's a few things about paths in real life, so to speak, that you actually walk with your own feet with the paths that we associate with decisions that we make, right? Like pathways are intentional. Like you don't accidentally end up on some path. Like typically you plan to go on a path. You plan to see something that is going to be good. That's another thing that stands out to me when I think about a path or a pathway, like there's intentionality there. There's something good there. You're gonna get on a path and you're gonna overlook a canyon or you're gonna see a waterfall or a beautiful sunset. You're gonna get on a path and, and you're going to do it intentionally because there's something good that's, that, that, that's, that's at the end of the path, right? And then I think paths often take longer than you think they will. <laughs> like, I mean, having kids now on many paths over the years, we love to go hiking, as I said. And so, I mean, most of our hikes consist of me telling my kids how much longer it's gonna be until we get to where we need to go. <laughs> and then you have to calculate how long it's gonna take you to get back. Have you ever made the mistake I've made early on? Like when we were as a family taking hikes, like you're good, you got energy, you're good. And you, you way overshoot it on, on the path and you realize, oh no, we have to go back. <laughs> and paths are good, they're intentional. Like they involve something that you wanna see and be a part of. And then, you know, a lot of times they take longer than you think. And so it is when we think about the pathway that God has outlined for us in terms of our own spiritual growth and maturing to be like the one who saved us. If you think about it, you know, one of the ways we can think of a path or a pathway is, is the pathway that God has us on. Here's the thing, God has saved you for a purpose. He has saved you to do something special with you, in you and through you. And God, from the moment of your salvation has you on a path. In other words, God doesn't just save you and then beam you up to heaven. Like God saves you, he brings you into a relationship with himself. He changes your life. He, he, he guarantees a, a, an eternal hope and a home with him. And, and then there's a pathway we see outlined for us whereby we're growing and maturing in him. In other words, we're saved for a purpose, here for a purpose. And if we think about that in terms of a path or a pathway, we know that there are some things that are critical for us in our growth. What does it look like? Well, it looks like something that is good. God's got us on a path that's leading towards something good. It's intentional 
And here's the thing, it's going to take longer than you want it to take. When I think about my relationship with God, you know what I like to think of in terms of a path? <laughs> Not a walking path. I'd like to have a moving sidewalk. How about you? <laughs> I, I, I'd love to like, okay, God, you saved me here. And then like tomorrow I'm super Christian. That's not how it works. God meets you where you are and he works in you to get you to where you need to be. That's a good path. It's an intentional path and it takes longer than you want sometimes. It's day by day, week by week, month by month. And I'm, I'm so excited today to be rolling out not just a series, but an initiative here at Bell Shoals. We're calling The Pathway, where we're going to articulate four key aspects of this path that the Lord has put every single one of us on to mature into who we need to be and experience the very best in life. It's worship, connect, serve, and grow. That's the path for us to worship, to connect, to serve, and to grow. And as we plug into each of these things, and as we take the next step on this path in these areas, I promise you it's life-changing and it's life-giving. And we start with worship. Why? Because worship is the most foundational part of the path. In other words, you can't connect, serve, or grow until you first become a worshiper. Because here's the thing, here's the, here's the key takeaway for today. You and I exist to worship God. I encourage you to jot that down. I exist to worship God. Notice what I'm saying. I'm not saying worship is something that we do. No, it's much more profound than that. We exist to worship. Literally, we are created to worship. We are created for worship. Here's what that means. You cannot discover God's plan for your life without first becoming a worshiper. He has made you literally to worship. We exist to worship him. That's why the Apostle Paul said this in, in Romans 12. Check this out. He says, brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. And let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. And then notice this. This is truly the way to worship him. Notice Paul saying worship is about more than just like coming to some kind of religious practice, right? No, worship is all of life. Worship is sacrificial following, right? It's being on this pathway of not only worship, but connecting and serving and growing. Like, like there's this path here that God's laid out for us. And, and in that, every single day of our lives, even Monday through Saturday, right? There, there, there's an aspect here. We are to worship God and we are worshiping God because we exist to worship. We are made to worship. Everything about us centers on worship. Okay, let me break this down a little bit. If you're taking notes. First of all, here's, here's the thing. We're hardwired to worship. <laughs> like literally, you are hardwired to worship. Every single person on planet earth is hardwired to worship someone or something. And if you look through human history, what you discover is that people will worship some crazy stuff because we're hardwired to worship. We exist to worship, right? Like we're made to worship. And, and, and therefore, I mean, we're, it's, it's, it's in our DNA. 
Like it's in your wiring, you're hardwired to worship. And so every single one of us is gonna worship something. And going back to the apostle Paul, he highlights how this was happening negatively, even in his day and time. Here's what he's saying. There are people who knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. Here's what Paul is saying. Look at the world around you. How do you explain it? I mean, there are some today who say, well, it's, it's stardust. You know, we're here as a result of like stardust. There are some who say we're here because of aliens, which judging by some of you is a pretty good theory. And, uh, and then there's like, you know, I mean, there's all these theories like, right? Okay, well, can, can, I, can I just boil all this down? Here, here's what Paul's saying. Just look at the world around you. There is no rational explanation for the complexity and order in our universe, except for the fact that there's a God who made it so. I mean, that's the most rational explanation. So you hear, well, you know, I mean, that's just, it's foolish faith to believe that there's a God who created. Well, is it more foolish than a faith that says we're here as a result of random chance? Is it more foolish than a faith that says we're here through stardust? Is it more foolish than a faith that says we're here as a result of aliens? Here's what I'm saying to you. Paul's saying, listen, there are people in the world then and now, look around. There's really no other meaningful, rational explanation as to how we have all of this complexity and all of this order than the fact that there's a God who created everything and the, and the universe reflects his glory. And so Paul's saying, there are people, listen, they know God, they know, there's a, they, they know, but they won't worship him. So here's what happens. They begin to think up foolish ideas of what God is like. They're not gonna submit to the God who is our creator God, who's revealed his glory in the world, who's revealed his glory most acutely through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul says, well, then they're gonna come up with other ideas. What are their ideas? Well, their ideas rooted in darkness and confusion. And so here's what he says, claiming to be wise, they instead become utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever living God, they worship idols made to look like people and birds and animals and reptiles. And you know why they do this? Because they're hardwired to worship. And every single person on the earth today and every single person in human history worships someone or something. And when you don't worship the glorious life-giving God who created us, you substitute something much lesser in his place. And can I just be honest with you? Some of it's pretty messed up. I mean, even Israel, right? At Sinai, while Moses is receiving the law, fashions for themselves a golden calf. We don't know exactly what it looked like. I brought a picture here, just kind of say, okay, a golden calf. Can you imagine holding this up before people saying, this is our God. I've told you before, a calf is the best thing they could come up with. How about a lion, right? How about a bear, right? I mean, something, I mean, a calf, oh, not the calf God. That's what they're worshiping. You read throughout Israel's history, they're plagued by all these other nations worshiping Baal, okay? Baal is like one of the chief gods that we read about in the Old Testament. Here's Baal. This is actually a fragment we have today. We still have this fragment. It's about 48 inches tall. That's Baal. He's like this skinny human being, which I can appreciate, but he's wearing this goofy hat and he's got this rod and, you know, like... Grass is coming up. I mean, that's Baal. 
There are, we have statues that were fashioned of Baal. Here's one. <laughs> There's Baal wearing his dunce cap, okay? And like, that's him. They're fashioning these things, holding it up. That's the God they worshiped. That's the God the people worshiped when Elijah called down fire from heaven. I mean, this is crazy. You say, well, that was a couple thousand years ago. You know, people are smarter today. Really? Because I was in India a few years ago and this was one of their gods. <laughs> I mean, at some point in Hindu history, someone came up with this. This is one of their gods, one of many. You say, well, that's not in the United States. Well, that's interesting because I've been given tours of Scientology buildings in the United States. Every single one of them still has an office meticulously maintained for L. Ron Hubbard in case he comes back from the dead. You say, that's crazy. That's a reflection of the fact that we're hardwired to worship. And people even today will come up with some crazy stuff in place of worshiping the one who made them and gave his son to save them. We're hardwired to worship. Every single person worships someone or something. Okay, secondly, make a note of this. True worship, true worship is about authentic praise, not religious routine. So, okay, then what does it mean to worship? What does it mean for people to wrongly worship? What does it mean for people to rightly worship? Well, here's what it all boils down to. It all boils down to the fact that we worship what we value. And we do so naturally. So if you look at your own life, you're okay, what could I possibly worship apart from God? Okay, let me just ask you this. Here's how you think of it. What do you value in your life most? What do you most value? Reputation, career, status, family, children, grandchildren. What do you most value? Here's the ploy of the devil to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. It's not that many of us value bad things. Actually, we value things that we should value. Good things, important things. The, the issue is what do we most value? And if you can pinpoint that which is in your life that you most value, here's what happens. You naturally worship that thing. It may be a golden calf. <laughs> it may be a man-made God with a dunce cap on that controls the weather and the harvest. You know, it's, it's what do you value? What do you most value? And listen to me very, very carefully. Whatever you most value, you naturally Worship And what does that worship look like? It's natural, intrinsic praise and celebration. It's not routine. So if we turn that into a positive and we say, okay, through the grace of God and through the blood of Jesus, God's brought us into a relationship with himself where now we can worship God. That's who we should worship. That's who we're created to worship, right? We can't actually fully understand fulfillment and joy and peace and hope until we place our ultimate value where it belongs. And that's in the Lord, right? Our ultimate value. It's not that we don't value other things and other good things. It's that we ultimately value our God who is everything to us, right? And when we ultimately value him, we will naturally worship him, praise him, celebrate him, think about him, re rejoice over him, serve him, right? And, and, and do all that we do in all these other valuable areas to bring honor to him. And we will do it naturally. 
because you naturally praise and celebrate what you most value. In other words, there's no class we offer on how to worship. You don't become a Christ follower, get baptized, join a church and say, okay, here's a class on how you worship. You have to stand in a certain way. You have to sing in a certain way. You have to conduct yourself. In a, no, there's no, you know why? Because we all naturally worship. We naturally rejoice over, celebrate, cheer what is most valuable to us. And so when we think about true worship then, and we think about true worship of God, who is the one who's created us to worship him and therefore find our greatest fulfillment and joy, that worship should be governed by authentic praise, not religious routine. Here's what the great C.S. Lewis said about worship. He said, the most obvious fact about praise, whether God or anything else, strangely escaped me for many years. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or honor, giving honor. He said this, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. You naturally praise what you most enjoy. You naturally celebrate what you most enjoy and value. He says the world rings with praise. It is what we delight to do. Indeed, we can't help doing it, praising everything we value. That comes naturally to us. Why? We're hardwired to worship. Therefore, what do we learn about true worship? Worship of the one true and living God. That it's about authentic praise and celebration for valuing him above all else. It's not about some routine. This is why, by the way, when you gather at a concert, I was at one a few months ago with about 15,000 of my best friends. And what are people doing? They're raising their hands. They're dancing around. They're singing out loud. Why? They're made to worship, made to celebrate. There's no class on that. You ever been to a Tampa Bay Lightning game? Come on, man. A lot of celebration going on in there. A lot of celebration. I mean, what happens in there? Listen, I ha here, here, it's so cool if you've never been. Okay, you gotta go. It's, it's amazing, right? And you get in that environment and the, and the Lightning score a goal, right? And there's, there, there's all this stuff going on and people are happy and they're jumping. I, listen, it's so amazing. I have even seen accountants jump up and down. People you would say, oh, they would never. Oh, man, you know, they put a little house of pain, jump around on the loudspeakers. People jumping around, they're celebrating, right? Oh, you can't do that, right? People doing it. Why? Naturally, intrinsically, you celebrate, you praise, you worship, if you will, what's most valuable to you. Now, I'm not saying that has to be or is necessarily the most valuable thing about you. It could be a good thing. You're having a good time and, that, and that's reflected. I'm simply saying when it comes to worshiping God, when it comes to our daily praise, enjoyment, cheer, cheerfulness, right? Like our expressions of praise. Why is it, can I just ask you, why is it that you can raise your hand at a football game or a, or, or an, or a hockey game? You can, you, can, you can jump up and down at a, at a sporting event or a music concert. But to do that in worship is like, oh, that's a real zealot there. Why is it that over the years, some of us have like restricted worship to routine instead of authentic praise? Why is it that, that some of us reflect more joy and cheer and celebration in worldly things than we do celebrating and worshiping our great and our awesome God? 
It's not that everybody has to raise their hands all the time or dance around or jump around. Of course, I'm not talking about anything irreverent or anything like that, but I'm simply saying we are made to worship, hardwired to worship, made to praise. We naturally, here's what C.O. Lewis is saying, we naturally, intrinsically praise, celebrate, cheer what's most valuable to us. And there are many things in our lives that we rightfully cheer and are encouraged by. They're good things, but there's an ultimate thing that if we miss, we miss everything. And if you truly value as primary in your life what God has done for you and who he is, here's my point, Monday through Saturday, there ought to be regular opportunities in your day where you praise, you give thanks, you cheer, you celebrate. And this room right here every single week ought to be a reverent celebration of who God is and what he has done for us. God is not glorified in a people that restrict the authentic, joyful celebration of who he is and what he has done. And I present as exhibit A in my argument, the great King David. You know, David was a man who loved God. I mean, throughout his life, I mean, God's actually talking to Solomon, Rehoboam and all these other kings like about, hey, David's a man who loved me his whole life. Y'all ain't loved me your whole life. David loved me from start to finish. And one of the ways we saw that in David's life is when he brought the ark to Jerusalem. Just think about this, the ark, the ark that contained the tablets that Moses gave to Israel, right? I mean, this ark where God's presence was acutely located and found, I mean, this, the ark, the ark of the covenant, right? It had never been in Jerusalem. And David's bringing the ark victoriously, joyfully, gloriously into Jerusalem. And let me show you what happens. David and all the people of Israel are celebrating before the Lord. They're singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Why don't we use castanets? <laughs> I mean, they're using everything they got, right? They're just, they're so overwhelmed by God's goodness. They so value him and, and his work in their life. Like the ark is coming to Jerusalem. All that this represents, they're just overwhelmed. They're celebrating, they're worshiping the Lord. They're singing, they're playing all these instruments, everything they had. Listen, I know people, if they knew that Israel were playing tambourines, they would pass out. (laughs) Well, you can't play those in church. Like they're playing them back then, right? Thousands of years ago. I mean, I'm just saying, man, they're just celebrating the Lord. Check this out. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, wearing a priestly garment. Nobody would normally be wearing, like he's got a priestly garment on. And, and, and David and all the people brought the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. And just, man, this scene of worship and praise. It came naturally. Again, there's no class. Okay, when we line up to bring the ark into Jerusalem, here's how you have it. It's just natural, right? We're, we're hardwired to worship. And true worship is about authentic praise, not religious routine. It's just, it's just the everyday praise, joyful celebration, appreciation of just who God is and what he's done. It's just, it's reflected in all of our lives. That's what I'm saying. It's about what we value. And they valued the Lord more than anything else. And the fact that the ark's returning is just, they're just overwhelmed with God's goodness to them. But there's one person not happy about it. Look at this. David returns home to bless his own family. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said in disgust, well, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. He wasn't inappropriate, irreverent, disrespectful. He wasn't... He wasn't wearing something inappropriate. I mean, but notice the sarcasm here. Wow. 
Oh, look at the king. Didn't very much look like a king today now, did you? And David says this to Michael. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all of his family. (laughs) That's a whole nother sermon right there. I'm just gonna let that go. (laughs) And he's like, how is dancing before the Lord, right? And he appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. And so I celebrate before the Lord. And then he says this, yeah, you know what? I'm even willing to look more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. I'm not doing anything inappropriate. I'm worshiping the Lord. And then look at this. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. (laughs) You think the Lord had something to say about her rebuke of David and his worship? And, and again, David wasn't doing anything irreverent or anything inappropriate, but man, he valued the Lord more than anything else in his life. And whether he was a king or a pauper, when that ark made its way into Jerusalem for the first time, he got his worship on. It was just a natural, authentic praise of what he valued most. And he didn't care who saw You say, well, why did Michael so strongly rebuke him in his expressions of worship? Well, I'll tell you, because she was a Baptist. And um, (laughs) you're not allowed, (laughs) everybody knows you're not allowed to dance in a Baptist church. Come on, who's heard it? Come on, you're not allowed to dance. You can't do that, right? No, I'm only kidding. Dave is like, no, man, like, I'm worshiping the Lord. And so let me just ask you, who or what do you value more than who God is and what he's done in your life. Probably not a bad thing. Maybe a good thing that you've turned into an ultimate thing. You're made to worship. You're made to worship God. That's expressed. Its value is expressed naturally through praise and celebration. And then, and then lastly, here, here's the thing. As, as we endure in this, this is where we start on the, God, on the pathway, right? Worship. Enduring worship is God-centered and future-focused. Here's the thing. We are a forward-focused people. And here's what I mean by that. Whatever you're facing today, whatever challenge, whatever crisis, whatever blessing, whatever you're navigating today, can I just give you a word of hope? True worship centers on the goodness of God and the future that he has secured for you so that you can worship God with praise, enjoyment, and enthusiasm, no matter what you face. Because no matter what you face in this life, I promise you, the Lord has a future hope for you that is unchanged. And that's our hope. And and Jesus reminds us of this when he when he speaks to the 72 disciples that served him, right in the middle of his ministry, there's 72 disciples sent out. Not think of the 12, right? We think of the 12, but then there's 72 that God raises up. He uniquely empowers them to validate the true gospel. The fact that Jesus is the Messiah, right? And right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, these 72 go out and they serve. And there's just all these miraculous things that are happening. They come back to Jesus, check this out. And, and, and they say to him, right? Look, when the 72 come back, they joyfully report to Jesus, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Look at what's happening. Like they're obeying us. Look at what we can do. They all come back to Jesus. They're overwhelmed by this special dispensation of his power in their life. Look what we can do. I mean, even the demons are obeying us. And Jesus is like, right? Um, Well, uh, yeah, I was there when Satan fell from heaven. 
Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you, right? I mean, like, they're like, look what we can do. Jesus like, hey, hold up, boys. Like, I was there when Satan fell. Of course you have that power. And then he says this. Look, I've given you authority over the power of the enemy and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you, but I love this. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice rather and ultimately because your names are registered in heaven. And there is nothing that ever happens to you or through you that is better than that. And so look at Jesus. He's he's really not trying to be a party pooper here. He's He's just trying to anchor the hearts of his followers to say, listen, no matter how greatly God uses you or no matter what calamity you face in this life, here's the beautiful thing. That you have this hope and this promise and this guarantee. Your name is written in heaven. No matter what you face in this life, you have a reason to worship and a reason to praise. God's got you. And Jesus is warning them, hey, listen, there's a difference between appreciating a God who can work for you and through you and being amazed by the God who can do those things. And Jesus is saying, don't don't ever let the focus of what's happening slip to you and what you're doing. Hey, I was there when Satan fell. (laughs) Keep the focus on what matters most what you should value most, that by God's grace, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your names are written in heaven. It's nothing better than that. And therefore, Monday through Saturday and Sunday, we have a reason to worship, to naturally cheer, praise who we value, more than anything else. And when you get to that point in your life, when you value Jesus more than anything else, that's when you start drawing from the deepest well of your heart. And you begin to experience and drink from a joy that you just can't even imagine because you're hardwired for that. And I just want you to see here briefly a story of one of our worship leaders at our Espanol campus. Her name is Karina Enriquez, who years ago... (laughs) moving through her own challenge and struggle, came to a place she realized the first step on the pathway of growth and maturity is the priority of worship, the life-giving, life-changing power of worship. Let's watch her story together. I am Karina Enriquez. I am a member of Belchol's Español. Back in the day when they started they would project the lyrics to music onto a screen. They used the transparency films, and that's how I began. You know, I was the girl that kept up with the transparencies, and I would put them up on the screen. And what I would, while I would sit there, because you had to sit pretty much with the worship team, I would sing. And as I would, I started to sing. My pastor, who was the worship leader at that time, he uh, he's like, "Why don't you join the worship team?" I was like, mm, "I'm not a singer." Uh, but slowly, I eventually went into that field, that position, and I've been there ever since. One of the low points in my life, I remember, I remember being at that point, you know, where where everything seems to have gone. In our lives, literally, everything was gone, almost. I did a lot of worship. I did so much worship, because it was just about letting go. It's like, here I am. There's nothing in the way anymore. There's nothing that can stand between you and I. But he's all I needed. 
to do what he needs to do in, for, and through us. Because when you worship, you surrender everything. Your, your, your defenses are down. Your walls are down. It's not just about knowing the right chords or the right intros and outros and not just memorizing lyrics. That that word of life has to be personal. That's worship. And it's got to be an everyday thing in everything you do. It can't be just on Sundays and Wednesdays and maybe at a life on a Thursday. We worship God through everything. And it's because He is. And He is one. So why do we worship God when things are good? Why do we worship God when things are bad? Why do we worship God in days of struggle and in days of blessing? I'll tell you why. Because our names are written in heaven.